This is an audio review of the Meat for Tea cast. This review originally appeared on iTunes on January 26, 2022, by username OJason. OJason titled the review Great Conversation. Five out of five stars were awarded for the program. The review goes as follows. I really enjoy this podcast because it's much looser and free-flowing than your average interview program. It feels as though you're dropping in on a groovy dinner party. The show brings in writers, musicians, and visual artists, and the conversations are a joy for the ears, dot, dot, dot. Oh, there's always some laugh-out-loud moments, too. A great companion to the periodical. Cheers. And then in parentheses, the reviewer writes, cue clinking glasses sound effects. And since this is an audio review... The Meet for Cast is brought to you in part by Lab, a recording studio in East Hampton, Massachusetts. Offering recording, mixing, and mastering of all styles of music, we even master podcasts. Email info at sonelab.com for more information. That's info at S-O-N-E-L-A-B dot com. That's the record button. Have we started? We have started. So this is the Meet for Tea cast. You might always start like that. Who knows? I'm Elizabeth McDuffie, founding editor of Meet for Tea, The Valley Review, and this is... I'm Mark Allen Miller, sidekick and uh, co-conspirator in Meet for Tea. Yeah, and I'm graphic designer and web guy and um, the hats. host of the Cirques and a whole bunch of stuff. The hats, there are many. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the Meet for Tea cast. Season three. Episode 17. That's 17, right. you're wondering how we went on 17. Oh, because 16 was a special Patreon. Patreon. Well, there's a publicly available preview of that one. And also, I think three episodes prior to that, we also did one. But in order to hear the whole thing... Subscribe. Well, to Patreon, yes. Go to patreon.com forward slash meet for tea. Hi, we're plugging the show right out of the gate. Why not? <laughs> That's because your support counts and matters. It helps us keep us doing what we're doing. And also, I wanted to explain why it's episode 17. This Patreon episode preceding this one, by the way, is from a conversation I had with David Yao 10 years ago, back in 2012. Phone recording interview, and it's wonderful and hilarious he's very generous with some very funny stories yeah it was great you want to check it out it was fun revisiting that after after 10 years coming pulling that back out of the archives and preparing it for the patreon page it's like oh yeah this was really good very very cool so patreon.com forward slash me for tea two bucks a month you get all the exclusive stuff four bucks a month you can also get a pdf of every issue when it is released so that's cool so many perks. Six bucks a month. You can get your name mentioned on the Meet for Tea cast, and you'll have our eternal thanks for being a huge, huge supporter 
but even two bucks a month. Hey, we appreciate that. We do. But this episode... That's right. The aforementioned episode 17... Of season three. I have a delightful conversation with scholar, writer. She's shortlisted for a Jasmine Award for her short essay. A finalist. Yeah. In Meat for Tea. Yes, she's one of six finalists for a Jasmine Award for short pieces, which is the most highly regarded journalistic reward for beauty writing, writing in the beauty industry in the UK. And I'm talking about the one, the only, Nicola Thomas. Yeah. She's brilliant. We have a far ranging talk that goes far beyond the world of perfume and also kind of elucidates how the world of perfume can encompass so many other intellectual pursuits. Indeed. Indeed. I am looking forward to tucking into it myself. So before we proceed with that, maybe we should just do a little bit of housekeeping. Oh, well, first of all, stay tuned at the end of the episode when we rejoin you. Six word stories. We got a bunch of them. I think we got like seven or eight of them. Uh, and they're all really good. So you got to stick around for the end for that. But in the meantime, if you like what you're hearing, please, first of all, tell your friends. Just tell your friends to listen. That's probably the best way to help us out. But secondly, you can like, subscribe, whatever you can do on your podcast app. Leave a five-star review with writing if it lets you do it, like Apple Podcast does. Yeah. Speaking of which, guys... I was very sad today. I was going to read new reviews or actually have Sebastian, who's here with us, read new reviews. And, well... There's none. There's are you no... sad about that, Sebastian? No no fun reviews to read. I'm going to jump off a building right after this. See what you did? Dude, that's dark. That's really dark. <laughs> I hope you all are proud of yourselves. Hint. He doesn't really mean it. So, yeah, so you can like and subscribe or And not to shame you into reviews, but guys. Yeah. Also, we've been begging. We really want to hear your voices. It's super, super easy to record a voice memo on your phone. Just send it to meetforteacast at gmail.com and we'll play your voice memo on the podcast. We'd love to hear your lovely voices more. You can read your review, you can offer up suggestions, you can talk about what you thought about a previous episode. It's all manner of things you can put in that voice memo. You could just give us a good recipe or something. That would be awesome. Anything like that. So there's all those things you can do. You can also go to the meatfortea.com page and subscribe or buy issues digitally. And you can also go to our Teespring which is the little t-shirt icon on meetfortea.com. Sebastian can tell them about the Teespring. Yeah, what do we got on Teespring? You know the drill. T-shirts, um, long sleeve t-shirts, glasses, those aren't t-shirts, um, mugs, socks, I think. All sorts of stuff. It's all cool. Sebastian's got a Meat for Tea t-shirt now. He's got a long sleeve one. Charcoal gray with the Meatini logo. It's rad. Pretty spiffy. You want one. Also on the same Meat for Tea page, if you go to our chapbooks, uh-huh. we have a brand new chapbook, The Black Dog Poems by Jane Yolen and Peter Tacey, which you want. 
Yes, it's lovely. It came out really good. We're really, really happy. It's in some of the local bookstores. Oh, yeah, the local bookstores. The last bit of housekeeping probably is where can people find the new issue of Meat for Tea, which is um, volume 16, issue one. That's right. And it's the Russian caravan issue. Volume 16, issue one is available at Holy Moly's Comics and More, Broadside Bookshop, Book Moon, Hastings. Amherst Books. Amherst Books. Mystery Train Records Mystery and Train Amherst. Records. Wedgeworks. And Wedgeworks, yeah. So there's... um. Emily Williston Library, Forbes Library, and Jones Library, too. Yeah, lots of ways you can support local businesses and actually help us out as well. But, uh, yeah, tell them we sent you. <laughs> if you don't live locally and you just can't wait to get your hands on the Black Dog Poems, go to your local indie bookseller and ask them to order it. If you go to our website, the ISBN and everything they'll need to order it is handily dandily there for you. So go to your local bookstore. Help us help Jane and Peter get their book all around this country. Yeah. It's really good, too. I mean, I'm biased, but it is really good. All right. So uh, I think I'm going to let Sebastian introduce our guest, who we're going to hear with Elizabeth speaking. All right. So here's Elizabeth and uh, Nicola Thomas. I am thrilled to welcome Ariadne award-winning Writer Nicola Thomas, who authored the Nosings essay in the Raw issue of Meat for Tea and has been shortlisted for the very prestigious Jasmine Award. Congratulations. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you get it. <laughs> Me too. I don't think I will, but I hope I hope I get it. <laughs> well, I'm rooting for you. And that was, uh, and that was in the short pieces category. And I was excited to find out that um, Samantha Scriven, who wrote the Nosings essay in our most recent issue of Meat for Tea, the Russian Caravan issue, she and Sarah are for the, as you know, probably book length projects on the same short list. Yeah, and this is the first I've, book. It is a great book. It's, I, I have it. My husband actually pre-ordered me a copy and then I had to sit and wait patiently for it to arrive in the States because all kinds of things happened, but it's here and I love it. Yeah. It's a very friendly um, look at perfumery, I think, which is really nice and um, really good for people of all levels as well in perfumery. Yeah. It's, it's free of snobbery. Mm. Yeah, definitely. As as perfumery should be, but isn't. Yeah. You why do you think that is? Why do you think perfumery and the whole the whole business of being into perfumery tends to get cordoned off into this kind of red velvet rope snobbish area? Mm, I think it's because um the obviously there's a tradition of it, it you know, particularly in the West, there's this grand tradition of it in France and mm. Italy and other places. And as an industry, it's always been really closed. Um, formulas are closely guarded secrets. How you mix things is, you know, a closely guarded secret. The proportions, all that stuff. Um, and it's led to this very sort of secretiveness. Um, and I think that 
then is it's not very far from that secretiveness to draw a line to that kind of exclusivity. Um, and, you know, clearly it's a luxury as well. So people always want to rope it off and say, well, you know, this is for rich people and this is for everybody else, you know, normal people. Um, and, I, yeah, I do think it can be a bit like that. And, and a lot of the jargon and the terminology that she used, you know, Shepra and um, solid floor and things like that, it, it's all set up to kind of um, exclude people. And so I mm. think it's quite hard to break those barriers down sometimes. And, you know, I think many people um, who like perfumery even will have been into a store at some point and been, um, you know, and I should, I should, before I say this, I should say there's a lot of sales assistants who aren't like this, but, you know, we've all had that sort of slightly snobby sales assistant who looks down the nose at you and is a bit like, you know, should you really be smelling this? And actually what I believe is that um, good perfumery is a, an art form and actually art shouldn't just be for rich people uh, and good perfumery shouldn't just be for rich people or educated people. It should be something that everybody can enjoy uh, and there should be different levels of it um, to allow greater accessibility um, and greater inclusion um, because, you know, beauty shouldn't just be for the for those who can afford it. It should be for everybody in some form, certainly. Yeah, I, I love that, that inclusion. Do you think that perfumery kind of shares sort of the same image when it comes to being exclusive, luxury, and for the very knowledgeable, sort of as the knowledge of wine? Yeah, I think right? it's similar. Uh, yeah, wine or whiskey, anything like that, or cigars, I imagine. Um, yeah, anything that is the preserve, that is a luxury item, is the sort of preserve of, um, yeah, those who have, um, you know, significant means to indulge in it. But I, part of the reason I, well, not even the reason I got into it, but the ethos that set me up when I was setting up my blog and starting to write about it was... I had a career in uh, medical evidence. So mm. I was working for an organisation which takes, um, it did systematic reviews for medical interventions. Um, and so it would take a really, really complicated systematic review that looked at all the medical evidence and said, you know, there's good evidence that this intervention works and there's poor evidence that that intervention works. And the people who mostly use these reviews are doctors. But of course, um, doctors doctors and, and people suffering from the conditions that we're investigating. Um, and doctors are very busy people. So, mm-hmm. And also the lay audience would not necessarily have the in-depth scientific, scientific, scientific and statistical knowledge. <laughs> That's a mouthful. Yeah, it is, yeah. <laughs> um so my job, or part of my job, was to look at the whole review and decide um, what they were concluding based on the science and then turn that into two or three paragraphs of accessible language so that lay people could understand the results of this review without having to read the whole thing. Mm. And those, those lay summaries were then made freely available. And when I started 
around that time I started getting into perfume and I thought there's so much of this is really inaccessible just in the term, you know, in terms of the language. There's so much jargon, there's so much, um, there's so many kind of barriers to people being able to get into understanding what the scent's actually about that I thought, well, I'm going to start writing about it, but I'm going to write about it in a way that aims to be accessible. And so I try not to use a lot of, um, I use a lot of emotive language, but I try not to use a lot of jargon like Shepra and Soliflor and things like that. Um, or if I do use it, I try and explain it. Um, so, you know, you'll quite often see me writing sillage or, you know, brackets, or the projection, or how the scent projects from the body. So mm. people are, uh, feel included. Or my aim is to try and make people feel, feel included. And, you know, I think I'm on a journey with that. Um, and I probably get it more right sometimes than others. But that's my aim, is so that people can come to my reviews and read about a perfume and go away with a sense of what it might be like to wear that without ever needing to smell it. So that they've got a greater sense of, well, actually... I think maybe I should hunt a sample down of this or maybe I won't bother with that one. That's that's a wonderful goal. And do you feel like this is kind of a feminist goal too, this drive towards inclusion and this drive towards using clear, transparent language and moving away from jargon? It feels, I mean, I don't want to put politics in your mouth, but it, it feels like a feminist act when I was in my PhD program, which was composition rhetoric, writing and the teaching of writing, deeply, deeply theoretical. My project was to story my research, to tell it in a form as engaging as story, something that someone could share with their mom or their grandma and they'd be engaged by it and not be stumbling over, you know, terms like interdiscursivity. And you know. so um, it feels like a feminist act to me. Um, I've never really thought about it in those terms, but I'd kind of love it if it was. <laughs> I think it could yeah, be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I've never really, yeah, never really thought about it through that lens before, but yeah, I could see that that in level of inclusion would be. And of course, um, one of the things that's really nice about particularly the world of niche perfumery is that it's, it tends towards being more gender inclusive. And I would hope that people of all different genders would be able to find something in the world of niche and artisan fragrance that made them feel like they had a place there and that they were included there and that it isn't as exclusive as the binary of um, high street fragrances, which do tend towards being marketed to men or to women, um, and thus exclude people who don't identify it with either of those categories. So I like to think that niche is a little bit more welcoming to people um, of all different um, persuasions and identities. So I guess it would kind of fit within that broad brushstrokes idea. Yeah, I think I need to think more about that because it's a really interesting idea and I would I would like to ponder on it some. Mm. Well, I'm glad to have given you something to chew on, some food for thought. Now, your blog writing, that's in Fragrantica mainly, or where else will people find your blog? So um, I started initially my own blog, which is called The Sniff. Just like the podcast? 
Yeah, yeah. And that led on to my own podcast, which is the Sniff Perfume podcast. Um, and then off the back of that, I started writing for Fragrantica um, only about 12 months ago, uh, mm. trying to sort of particularly write about um, niche and artisan fragrance. So it's kind of, uh, you know, there's been a series of little stepping stones, but I've written for as long as I, you know, as, as long as I can remember really about other things. Um, and sort of, I think the perfume blog's been maybe five years now, four, five years. Um, and for Grantica, just about 12 months. Nice. Six years. So it's like a master's degree, what we in the States would call in perfume writing. <laughs> I think you can lay claim to some expertise there. And lifelong writing, the, the fact that you've been a lifelong writer shows your prose is gorgeous. Oh, thank you. No, that's really nice to hear. Like, it's my first love is writing. You know, perfumes are my second love, but writing was definitely my first love. And I, I recently uh, was clearing some stuff out of my mum's garage and um, I found a box of uh, old schoolwork from when I was very, very young. Oh. <laughs> The narrative arc on some of my early short stories was dreadful, but um, it was really fun to kind of read sort of, you know, six and seven-year-old me's thought processes when writing these stories about unicorns and magic talking trees and things like that. Oh, do you think there, there's a bit of a Narnia influence on your little girl writing? Um massively, yeah. <laughs> Narnia and Middle Earth and uh-huh. anything like that. Yeah, all that stuff, massively, yeah. Yeah, that's that's so charming. That's delightful. Do you still like to write other genres like short fiction and poetry even now? Um, I struggle with poetry and always have done. Yeah, I find it... I was I was taught by... when I, I did a, um, a master's in creative writing a few years ago now. Mm. And um, I, was taught, I was taught by a poet called Ed Pavlich, who was amazing... And he he used to laugh at me because he, he was a you know superb poet. And he would say, how can you know so much about the worlds that you're talking about? Because he would look at my, uh, my sort of writing book and I would have drawings of buildings that were, you know, part of the writing and things like that. And, you know, little diagrams and, you know, scraps of things and fragments all stuck into this book and he he was always like how can you know so much and I was thinking how can you know so little you know and yet make something that's so you know his poetry is so beautiful or it certainly was 10 years ago when he was teaching me so yes I do still like to write other genres but not poetry I, I struggle with shorter genres. I always want to go long. I always want to write novels. Um, hmm. so I, I finished, I did write a novel, which is unpublished as yet, a few years ago. And I'm probably about a quarter of the way through my second one, which I'm actively writing at the moment. And I tend towards, when it's, you know, when it's not about fragrance and it's not kind of a journalistic type piece or a review type piece, I tend towards kind of fantasy, magic realism, slight horror that sort of stuff (laughs) I want to read them (laughs) and uh, attention publishers that might be listening to the podcast I I I hear there's a novel looking for a home so (laughs) (laughs) reach out to Nicola you can be the first one to (laughs) put it out there (laughs) I'd love love that (laughs) 
Well, I, I know a few publishers. We publish books, but only um, chap books. Do you know, just little um, slim volumes of right. poetry or short fiction by a single author. And we haven't, I'm reading a new one right now by a film professor, actually. And it's all poems about film. It's kind of lovely. It's the longest one we've done. It's 106 pages. And yeah. My poor graphic designer, who's also the sound engineer for the podcast, and also my husband. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're a staff of two. Um, he's, he's not thrilled with the thought of doing a 106-page book. <laughs> yeah, it'd be worth it in the end, though. Yes, and I know people who do bigger. So in terms of your novel writing, magical realism influences, I, is this like, did Gabriel Yorka or um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, that kind of Latin American magical realism, have an influence? Well, only in so much as I absolutely hate Gabriel Garcia Marquez. <laughs> Tell me. Ooh, what's the dish on Gabriel Garcia Marquez? <laughs> Just because I find his work really boring. Like I, mm. I think his brawls. Yeah. And I, every time I've tried to read his books, I've started off being very excited and um, got within a hundred pages and just thought, oh, this is awful. This is just awful. <laughs> um, so I would say Louise Erdrich. Um, oh my gosh. Me too. Do you have a favorite book by her? Um, is it the Beat Queen? Oh my gosh. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> I absolutely, I, I love that book. I, um, I love it so much that I actually wrote a paper on the Beat Queen and um, Toni Morrison's beloved and themes of oh, yeah. blood and family mm. and death as they weave through those. Well, I love that we have the same favorite Louise Erdrich novel. <laughs> I mean, it's hard to pick just one because she's amazing. Yeah. She's so good. Um, we did, we did a, a sort of module about her when I was doing my master's and it just like blew me away. And, and Toni Morrison as well, actually. Just how... Love her. Um, yeah, just how incredible these writers were that I'd never at that point heard of. Um yeah, so I think there's something so haunting about Louise Erdrich. You know, she's mm -hmm. so, it, like her work kind of gets under your skin and into your bones and haunts you a little bit. And I think that's just really, it's really clever how she does that. I would say, you know, I, I wouldn't, you know, even presume to compare my stuff to hers, um, but she definitely was an influence. And I think I sort of, land somewhere between her and like Clive Barker and not not I love that though that kind of Clive Barkery stuff and Stephen King type stuff that's what I'm it's that oeuvre so yeah it's all in that sphere um I really want to read that finished novel <laughs> you, you've got me you've got my appetite all set up for it it sounds like a delightful read <laughs> and I actually like it you know, Writing that occupies a space between Erdrich and Clive Barker. Like, who would even think? 
Do you see that just makes perfect sense to me though? Like, because they do feel related in my head. You know, they do feel kind of ethereal and interesting and dealing with things that you can't necessarily see or touch, but that mm-hmm. on some level, I think some of us kind of sense that there might be. You know, and I don't, I don't know. It's all imagination, isn't it? But what is imagination and what is reality? And you end up going down that rabbit hole of, you know, are any of us even real? <laughs> you know, are we all just figments of somebody's imagination? <laughs> yeah, no, I love that. And it's true. And Erdrich Ur- is also no stranger to exploring fairly horrific and terrifying and ghoulish at times. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, there's, there's a power in yeah, there's a power in her work when she does that. I think, and a real sort of, I don't know. She feels very driven at times when she's exploring those kind of scary stuff. Yeah, and I don't think she shies away from it either. I don't think you know it's not handled tentatively. It's she commits. She really commits in her writing, which is mm. just as a reader, it's very gratifying to read that stuff. She goes there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Same with like, like Beloved, uh, the Toni Morrison novel. It's almost like a ghost story. It is a ghost story. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think there's just such a lot of that stuff that's really good that, you know, it's not necessarily taught on a lot of curriculum, certainly in the UK that I'm aware of. And it... Uh, you know, it's not the sort of book that makes book club reading lists very often or top 10 reading lists, you know. But once you are exposed to some of them, they're just of such a... It's writing of such a high quality that it does leave you changed by reading them. You know, they're, they're quite moving. And yeah, the the sort of, you know, I think in a way, I think Toni Morrison and Louise Erdrich have a similar tone. They are both, <laughs> there's a sort of a, a gauzy kind of haunting, ethereal quality to mm. their writing, which, but that makes it sound insubstantial and it's not, it's, it's quite affecting. I don't know. It's like, it's, it's like, it's kind of light, but very powerful somehow. They managed that, um, delicacy and strength really really well which I think is just it's super clever to be able to do that mm-hmm. not just resort to it being stodgy heavy prose it's it's it moves it's they kind of their books feel a little bit alive somehow yeah no I love that I mean there's a kind of cliche here you know that the iron fist and the velvet glove and I think that that might work to describe their stuff. And as far as Garcia Marquez goes, you make me feel so much better about confessing that I never got through love in the time of cholera. I just could not. I, I actually, I, I, I dutifully, for you know all kinds of reasons, probably you know grad school influence reasons. Luckily, it wasn't assigned because I would have been, you know, tortured. But I dutifully felt that this was something I should read. But I just never got into it. A hundred years of solitude, I did enjoy. Mm. It was it was okay, but you know, I didn't enjoy it as much as like the Beat Queen. It was just like a a lark. Mm. 
a lark with, you know, devastation and pain and family torment. Yeah. Something about it that you just want to hang out with. And it does get like, it was, oh God, I'm almost embarrassed to say how many years ago is it? 25, almost 30 years ago when I was studying that in a master's program and it still lives in me. Yeah. Yeah. Gets into your bones, I think. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there, there are very few writers that you can, you know, kind of at least comparatively say that about. Um, I can probably think of less, you know, less than 10 writers that, that do that and manage to get into you and stay with you, particularly when you haven't read reams and reams and reams of their tech. You know, I would say Stephen King's a massive influence on me, but I've read something like 40 of his books. Um, mm. Louise Erdrich, I've read too, and yet they have stayed with me and just sort of floated around at the edges of my consciousness for probably 10, 15 years now. So it's powerful. It's powerful, that stuff. Yeah, I think it just goes into a space in the back of your brain, takes up residence there, Yeah, doesn't leave. I think, you know, I think it occurs to me that one of the things about both Louise Erdrich and Toni Morrison, actually, is that they don't write tropes of women. They write women as, like, visceral and having things, you know, sometimes bad things done to them, but they're not writing these fair little creatures that could never do violence or protect their family or make choices. You know, they're they're writing almost people that feel real and they're not writing insubstantial characters and certainly insubstantial women. They're writing women that feel multifaceted. And I think we sometimes miss that perhaps in, you know, general literature, literature terms generally, you know, yeah. even very popular writers write these two dimensional, you know, kind of creatures. And you think, well, that's not actually the, that's not actually my experience of being a woman. You know, it's can be more visceral and powerful and raw than that. And I think, Louise Erdrich and Toni Morrison both capture an, a sense of that somehow. Yeah. Yeah, definitely they do. Absolutely. I mean, even even in you know, branching out from literature, but like into TV and film, just finding women that feel dimensional and enfleshed and possessed of their own independent lives, you know, it can be quite a quest yeah. You've heard of the thing called the Bechdel test. Are you familiar with the Bechdel test? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, how much of, and you can apply it to literature too, how much of what we read or see passes that test comfortably? Mm-hmm. And using that as a filter. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, you end up with a pretty, pretty small concentrated vial to bring us back to perfume stuff. I feel like intellectually works of fiction that are powerful and that haunt and that linger on and fragrances that capture your imagination and stick with you and take you on a journey. I think that they share a kinship. Would you agree? Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, good, good fragrances can tell a story, you know, they can yeah. um, paint a sepia or move you through a kind of setting. And I think that was something that caught me unawares um, about fragrance before I really got into it. You know, once I started noticing that, you know, maybe that I was, I was putting something on and I was feeling a certain way or kind of imagining um, a story to go along with it. And then researching that and realizing that sometimes that was exactly what the perfumer intended. And sometimes it's really not. And so thinking, you know, this perfume is very successful in what it's set out to do because it's conjured in my imagination, the things that the perfumer was trying to convey. And one of the things that I really love about that is that sense of connection that, you know, a perfumer who might be based hundreds of miles away has had an idea, has translated that into a a medium that doesn't use words. And then I've come along, picked that up, sometimes years later as well, smelt it and gone, oh yeah, I get what that person was trying to say. And um, I just thought that was really cool. And it does have that same relationship between writer and reader that people do talk about more often, that there is a a distinct thread between perfumer and consumer, I suppose, that that does mirror the, the literature world as well, I think. I think so. I think so. It's fascinating to me. That's one reason why... I, I'm embarrassed to say I'd been doing meat for tea for almost 15 years and been very dedicated to showcasing art in a variety of genres and writing in a variety of genres. And it wasn't until just over a year ago that it dawned on me that it was a, there's a genre I'd been skipping over. There's intellectually very near and dear to me and very important. And just the, the, craft of making these invisible sculptures is uh, there's a a genius required to do it well Mm. yeah there is yeah yeah it's so interesting because the mind of a perfumer I you know I think I'm not a perfumer um at all have you dabbled I've dabbled I did some of a uh, Sarah McCartney's courses. Oh, fun. I want to do one. <laughs> oh, it was really good. It's it's worth doing. And, you know, Sarah's a really, um, Sarah from 4,160 Tuesdays, um, she's a self-taught perfumer and she's very engaging as a teacher and very generous with the knowledge. She's, there's no question you can't ask about um, fragrance making that she'll either know the answer, I don't think I've managed to stump her yet, or she'll... And rather, she'll share that answer with you, which is not true of all fragrance houses. And yeah, I, I was really quite rubbish at it. And it's very painstaking and it requires a lot of, you know, uh, meticulousness and attention to detail. And, uh, you know, I, I quite enjoy things like that. But the, the payoff wasn't quick enough for me. I wanted to be able to mix some things and just be like, I've made a beautiful thing now. And yeah, it, it's fun. And I really, really enjoy smelling raw materials and, and materials that go into perfume. That's, that's in itself just a delight and an education. But yeah, I don't, I don't think I was particularly good at it. So yeah, I did dabble. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm jealous. I, I want to do, I know she's got a, a workshop that you can do remotely and I want to. 
Contrary to popular belief, editors of small literary journals aren't um, sitting on piles of cash. So <laughs> when when budget allows, that's, that's something yeah. I want to treat myself to. I did on a vacation to um, San Martin in the um, French West Indies. I visited La Tijan. I think I told you about that house in a message that John Berglund runs and he has um, perfume labs you can sign up for. Mm. And the whole thing takes, I think you get an hour and a half. He's got a sense organ. You can pick out what you want and make your accords. And that was fast. I ended up with something I like. I'm actually, I wore it for our talk. I named it Lady Macduff, which is a name that was bestowed upon me in grad school after winning a poetry slam with a belly dance in which I uttered not a word. And I was the, <laughs> and I was the only woman. There was a bunch of men reading their poetry and I got up and did like a three minute shimmy dance and won all the prizes. <laughs> ha ha guys. <laughs> Brilliant. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Put them in their places a little bit. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think he offers up some, some shortcuts. He has he had some, Bases you could choose between that were like a mixture of sandalwood and frankincense. There, you know, things like that. So you could end up yep. with it. I think you could still make an awful smell. I think there's some some skill required. But I enjoyed it. I'd like to. I'd like to do more of it. It's so interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and I think it. It's a whole. It's a whole nother world, you know, and you can go down that rabbit hole and it will consume your life if you let it. But it could. The thing that puzzled me most about it was that, you know, if you mix blue and yellow, you get green. In perfumery terms, sometimes you mix blue and yellow and you get green. Sometimes you mix blue and yellow and you get orange. And sometimes you mix blue and yellow and you get crocodile. And Right. The thing that you're making isn't just a product of the two things that you've, or three things or four things that you've put into it. It turns out as something totally different. And I found that really like perplexing because it's almost a little bit, I mean, it's not illogical, but it feels illogical um, because you're so used to this plus that equaling this other thing. Mm -hmm. I think, but yeah, perfumers' minds must sit somewhere between art and science so they must have both sides of their brain firing when they're composing because of course it's got to be very scientific but it's also got to be beautiful and I yeah I just I think the the way that they combine the two so elegantly is it is endlessly fascinating so yeah it's really cool yeah it is and this, this brings me to kind of a fun segue you mentioned that you like old things and when I think about art and science combined and times in history, you know, I go back to the 17, 1800s when people were fascinated by alchemy, which was magic and science, <laughs> when science and magic were basically the same thing. Yeah. And a lot of that alchemistic practice involved a tool that was used in perfumery, the alembic. Mm. which is one of my favorite old-fashioned words. Yeah. 
it, and I think perfumery retains that sense of magic, you know, it, it, in some degree. There is, if you've ever smelt something that's made the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, because, not necessarily because it's purely beautiful as well, but because it reminds you of something or it transports you somewhere or it allows you to imagine a place, that is quite, you know, it's quite a magical feeling. And I think it's one of the reasons that people get really hooked on the hobby. And yeah, the, you know, that kind of um, vision of the Alembic bubbling away and making its interesting materials is, it's almost synonymous with perfumery. Mm. Yeah. So I think the two are definitely kissing cousins at least. I, I feel like it. I mean, there's, you can, the ability to open a bottle and have a whiff and travel through time. Usually when you talk about time travel, you are talking about magic, talking about science fiction, but it's just a literal fact, a fragrance that you will do a little bit of time traveling. Yeah. And how, how lovely or how terrible to have mm. memories that you can revisit in a way that is more vividly than just remembering by simply tying them to a fragrance. You know, I, I, um, I sometimes help people pick fragrances for their, uh, quite often wedding days. And what I say to them is don't, you know, is pick something and then don't wear it until your wedding day and then spray yourself with it liberally. And forever, every time you smell that fragrance, you'll be transported back there. And I recently did this for, well, it was a couple of years ago now, um, pre-COVID for a friend. Um, and we picked two for her, one for a wedding day and one for a honeymoon. And I was just saying to somebody yesterday, you know, she'll occasionally like bounce in. She's quite a, a, a sort of optimistic, happy person anyway, a little mm. sunshine, sunshine. Lovely. Person. And um, sometimes she'll bounce in and she'll be particularly glowing and I'll say oh you smell nice today what are you wearing and she'll be like oh it's my honeymoon perfume or oh it's my wedding perfume and um, it, it, they're tied together for her now those memories and that happiness and so she can revisit them at any time and of course you know it works the um, the other way as well if you wear something when something really sad or tragic happens you might not be able to wear it again because the, the, those memories get stuck to it as well um, yeah but if if you experience that, it is like time travel and it is more, certainly for me, it's more vivid than just remembering something. You know, I can remember something and I can, there's not as much emotion tied to it than if I smell the thing that reminds me of it at the same time. Right. Like, I think it's that whole olfactory region of your brain pulls up much more powerful memories than what you can get, you know, through your ocular senses or your aural senses and you can test, look at an old photograph and smell an old fragrance and the effect on the brain is so much more vivid. Yeah, yeah. I, a few years ago, I took a trip and it was a really big deal for me. Um, and I was retracing a trip that my dad took when he was 14 in 1964. And um, it was plus sort of tacking my own route on it as well. And it was going around Norway, which I'm completely in love with Scandinavia. It's an amazing um, set of places and I just adore going there. So I was I was travelling by myself 
um, for a month and just having to really push myself out of the, my comfort zone in order to do that. And um, I went up to Tromsø in Norway and was wandering around a very tiny, tiny little mall there. And I, I was found there was a shop selling little fragrances and I smelled one of them and um, thought, oh, that's nice. I'm going to treat myself to that because, you know, I was on the road for a long time and, you know, I hadn't ta- really taken very much scent with me or anything. And uh, I bought some of this perfume and sprayed it on. And I, I wear it very rarely now, but I keep it because every time I smell, just you know, take the cap off and smell the neck of that, that bottle... I'm immediately back in uh, in Tromsø and I'm in that mall. I'm in the sunshine. You know, it's cold, but there's a it's, the sun's out, and you know I can smell the sea I, and the 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 water. Sorry, and the spring flowers, and it just catapults me right back there. It's really strange, um, but great, really nice. Yeah, there's there's a certain kind of magic. Definitely, I had the most oddly serendipitous thing happened. A friend of mine, she's actually a a baker, but she came upon a vintage bottle of Nina Ricci's Lair de Tom, and she just reached out to me and said, I've been listening to your podcast, and I found out that you're into fragrances, and I'm not. Would you like this? And she didn't know that what she was offering me was what was my signature scent when I was 15. It just... Nice serendipitously ended up being that and I opened a cap and whiff and it's like there's my 15th year what a snobby 15 year old too Nina Richie's Richie's Lair du Tom (laughs) (laughs) no no loves baby soft or you know cheapies for me oh no (laughs) I was just thinking that was very sophisticated of you (laughs) I took on airs as a teenager I definitely did. I wouldn't read many books that were geared at my age group. I was much too sophisticated. I didn't have rock stars hanging in my bedroom. I had um, reproductions of Alphonse Mucha prints. (laughs) Really, I must have just been the most annoying thing. I just took on such airs. I was very into Aubrey Beardsley and Art Nouveau. I was insufferable. (laughs) (laughs) But it was amazing to me how it did that and just in in this trying to engage in some memoir writing, I think I might just organize the chapters by fragrances because you can just get a whiff and transport yourself back into an era. Mm. Yeah, you really can. Yeah. Um, And in a way that is unlike anything else, photographs, diaries, anything like that, it's not the same. Um, as the power of scent. Yeah, it's there's no hyperbole to how powerful it is. I sent that bottle to my 13-year-old granddaughter with a note that this is my signature scent when I was a teenager. I'll just get a sample for memoir purposes. And we'll be back in just a moment. And welcome back. Did you have a fragrance you had to retire after it had too many unpleasant associations attached to it ever? Thankfully not. Good. Glad to hear it. Yeah. Um, 
my sort of teenage scent was um, Green Tea by Elizabeth Arden. That's a nice one. You were a little bit of a sophisto yourself. Well, it, it was completely <laughs> accidental because um, my grandma, who I loved dearly, at the time she was visiting friends um, who lived in Spain quite often. And from one of these trips, she kind of brought me back a gift set and being a bit of a snobby teenager myself, I thought, (laughs) you know, it's going to be old lady smell that, you know, it's going to be what my grandma likes and not what I like. Right. Um, And then I smelt it and I was like, oh my God, it's amazing. And it totally hooked me. And of course, you know, I know now that it's by Francis Kerjian, um, who does a lot of huge, he's got a huge house and does hugely successful fragrances, a complete master perfumer but at the time I just thought it was a really nice smell and so yeah I wore that a lot but then of course at the same time for kids in the UK it was White Musk by The Body Shop so I kind of alternated Um, between the two that was a big deal and that was what yeah what all the girls wore and yeah and I mean the the trouble with Green Tears has been reformulated so many times that it's but a shadow of its former self but it's lovely and I, I just keep a bottle of it just because I, I like the smell of it still. I do occasionally wear it still. And I'm always like only lost, you know, the last half an hour before it's it's gone. But it is thoroughly lovely. And it particularly back then was especially lovely. Very little sillage to that one. Yeah, not much, no. <laughs> yeah. Perfect for a teenager. Yeah, yeah. Right? Just right. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I'm sad. I I have moved away from having signature scents because there's just so many cool houses to play around with and discover, not the least of which is Sarah's and imaginary authors. I love imaginary authors. Yeah, yeah. I love his stories. Yeah, they're brilliant. I would read those books. (laughs) I always think that. I actually want to invite him to write a nosings column because I think, well, he, he is a writer, yeah. He wears it on his sleeve or on his perfume packaging or on his website, <laughs> all the places. Yeah. But I used to be a signature scent lady and mine was um, for years, Zing from L'Artisan Perfumer, which they've reformulated. Right. And there's no longer the lovely lady in the red bikini riding a tiger on the label, which is how you know you've got an original one. I've got like maybe a third of a bottle left of it. And I'm so sad because I don't know that the reformulation is going to make me happy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's always the way, isn't it? It's, I think that's part of their charm, but also the real sadness of perfume is that they, you know, it's fleeting. You will use through a bottle and you'll have nothing to show from it, for it apart from the empty bottle. And then reformulations happen at a rate that you don't, you know, you don't know how long that formula is going to be around before it gets reformulated. Because of course, houses don't tell you when they reformulate. It's only when you buy it and you think this doesn't smell like it used to, that you know it's it's been um, reformulated. So they're a bit, you know, perfumes are in, in a way are a little bit like butterflies. They're very flexible. I love that. Both in, in wearing them and, and their lifespan. So yeah, it's about, I think there, there is something about they're, they can be quite grounding because they encourage you to live in the moment because in 
two or three hours, it might be gone. And then in two in two or three months or two or three years, it might be gone forever, <laughs> which is, yeah, fleeting and transient and makes you enjoy it while you've got it. Yeah. I love that. Perfumes are like butterflies. You should just write that down and use that for something. That's a brilliant phrase. <laughs> I quite love that. No, they are. They're, they're ephemeral. It's like going to see a ballet. Mm. Yeah. When it's over, it's over. Yeah. So, it, you know, love it while it lasts. Yeah. And the reformulations, isn't that largely just, um, just infraregulations and an ingredient maybe being an, on an endangered plant species or not being sustainable to produce? Is that usually the impetus? No, it tends to be cost. I, my understanding is that it's, it's cost-driven, so... A couple of years ago, vanilla harvests failed. So vanilla prices shot up and everybody who had vanilla heavy fragrances reformulated them um, to put more, you know, uh, substitutes in that were perhaps cheaper to get hold of than the the real deal. So I think it's quite often that um, sort of more fluctuations in materials. I think there can be, a, a, you know, there is an IFRA element sometimes where something is outlawed or changed but actually I think you get into a real murky area then about pe- people get really on the high horse about Ifra and about how um, they're ruining perfumery and mm. actually people like Sarah McCartney who teach on the subject feel very differently and they feel that mm-hmm. actually Ifra are protecting us um, as the consumer from things that can cause allergens um, so I tend I tend to not worry about that stuff too much um Mm. myself and just yeah try and get a backup bottle if I find something that I absolutely love right keep your perfumes in the dark (laughs) keep them in the dark they'll last longer yes yes I don't display my pretty bottles they're they're in their packaging they're on a shelf they're (laughs) protected no I admire Ifra I think that these are scientists doing kind and good and necessary Mm. work for us and I, I love that I had this rosy pictures of just people reformulating because Ephra was like, oh no, that ingredient's not sustainable. That ingredient's not, not safe. I, it was such a nice, kinder, gentler vision, wasn't it? Other than just simply cost cutting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry to disabuse you of that. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I like, was, yeah, I like your vision better. There's <laughs> probably time that bubble burst anyway. <laughs> and I don't know now that if something gets discontinued, I just, it's an excuse to reach out and just to explore more indie houses. Yeah. More niche houses. Yeah. There's so many incredible perfumers making incredible stuff that, um, there is such a lot to explore. I think I could sniff a new perfume every day for the rest of my life and still not get through half of them. Um, You'd have to be reincarnated several lifetimes over to really accomplish that whole project, I think. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, you'd have to go on. <laughs> right? Why not? Yeah. I very much liked your most recent episode of the podcast where you were talking with um, Marina Barcinella. Yeah. Am I murdering her name? Yeah. Um, yeah, just about. She said, don't. Don't say it Barcenilla, but as long as it's Barcenilla or Bathania, it's it's good. Barcenilla, of course, the double L is your known. 
Yeah, how charming is she? She's so delightful. Yeah, she's so brilliant. Yeah, yeah. The intellect of a perfumer, it's it's vast. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, Marina was lovely and she was really generous with her time. And um, yeah, so she's a space scientist as well as a perfumer. And the two, you know, those two worlds to me seem so separate, but she manages to unite them. Um, and she was just a, a, a generous and lovely guest to talk to. And I've never met her before, but I'm really hopeful that I'll get to meet her in person soon because, um, yeah, she was a joy to talk to. And it just, yeah, a lot of her work is about, so she does um, this outreach stuff, science outreach, which is about what does space smell like? And she said a lot of it stinks, you know, a lot of it stinks and is really horrible. So... She makes those scents as well as beautiful perfumes too, which is just really cool. And I love the idea of so cool. sniffing space, <laughs> which is, a, you know, obviously a massive simplification of what they do. But I, that's how I like to imagine them, just astronauts having a little sniff of space. <laughs> it's so intriguing. It's so brilliant. Yeah, I've actually reached out to her. We've been having conversations. She might be writing the next nosings column for the next issue of the magazine. So... I'm thrilled for that. So you listed off loving old stuff. What manner of old stuff? I think, um, well, particularly old furniture, actually, but it goes back to the storytelling um, because I did history for my first degree and, you know, hated it. But the thing that I took away from it was that people, you know, in the past had the best stories and, we, you know, when we study history, I think we have this kind of conceit where we assume that we're real people, but that they were characters. And some of the stuff I studied showed me these little glimpses into the humanity of people in the past and how they were real and three-dimensional, you know, as, as much as we are. And that they had, you know, things they were frightened of and things they dreamed about and cared for just in the same way that we do. And um, I, when, when I bought a house, um, I didn't have any money. So I started going to auctions um, and buying old, unfashionable furniture that I fell in love with. And you know, also very cheaply. Um, ended up with a house full of old bits and bobs, none of which matches, but which I'm, yeah, just in love with every piece of it and whether it's a you know Victorian dresser or my perfume cupboard which is from 1738 a falling apart chest of drawers you know it's all all that stuff and I I spend a lot of time imagining who made it where it lived um you know the number of houses that that piece of furniture has passed through how many garages has it been stored in how many um times has it been left out on on the back doorstep in the rain because it was waiting for somebody to come and pick it up um how many times has it been refitted with a, a drawer runner or something like that you know had it has it been tinkered with and one of my greatest wishes is that I could get the furniture to tell me its stories because I think it would be fascinating um, it would yeah so that's where my kind of love of old stuff comes in. It's partly from studying history, even though I found it deathly dull uh, at university. And 
partly from trying to reconnect with these um, these pieces of furniture and their stories. And you know, I also read a lot of you know kind of weirdly eclectic taste. You know, on the one hand, I've got Stephen King. On the other hand, um, I'm just working my way through the um, C.J. Sansom Shard Lake series of books and really enjoying being immersed in that um, Henry VIII kind of world. So, yeah, reading a lot of that as well. <laughs> Just really good stories, I think. History's really good stories. Yeah. If, 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 they're, if they're told more like stories, maybe the study of history wouldn't be deadly dull. Yeah, I think that was the problem with with my degree, actually. There was a lot of, let's talk about the history of taxation, which was just like, no, actually, I want to know how that affected people and what people thought about it and how they felt about it. Um, and kind of, I find political history particularly dull because it's just people kind of pontificating. And I, you know, want to know about the impact of prohibition on real families. I want to know what the mothers and fathers and children thought about it rather than just the fact that that legislation was passed. You know, that's just my my particular view. But I, I love the idea that people in the past were real people, not just historical figures. And they weren't stupid because they didn't have computers and penicillin and, you know, the ability to drive cars. They were, that didn't mean they were stupid. They were ingenious and... Mm-hmm. Um, they were fighting to survive a lot of the time. And when their loved ones died, they felt as sad as we do. And I like, yeah, I like to think about them as real people. And yeah, I just, I just love that idea. Uh, there's some really cool graffiti in, it's in one of the out, outer Scottish, um, I think out of Hebrides in, the, in Scotland. Um, and it's some graffiti in a cave made by the Vikings. And they know there's like a written source that says these Vikings got stuck there. That's so cool. Over winter one year because they were trying to get to, to kind of England and they, they got stuck because of this storm. And there's this bit of graffiti that says this writing is high up, but in runic Old Norse or something like that. <laughs> and I'm probably telling that really badly, but just that to me... That is the sort of thing that if you were stuck in a cave over winter, you might scribble on the wall even now. And it just made them, it just brought home the humanity of historical mm-hmm. characters to me. And so I just have been sort of slightly fascinated by it ever since, I think. Well, it's fascinating. I think it's a, that's absolutely lovely. This writing is high up. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> so humanizing. Yeah. And just imagine these like Viking, you know, young Viking men kind of nudging each other and laughing about the fact that they'd scratched this on the wall as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think another obvious reason why that a lot of historical study, and especially the study of politics, can be dull is for the most part, women are left out of it. Yeah. We're not, you, if, if you're looking for, most of us when we're reading a story, we're looking for some aspect of ourselves that's part of reading, that's part of enjoying literature is your, it's an empathy building activity where you're putting yourself in someone else's shoes. And when you're literally left out of the entire story, you know, I, I think that just that disenfranchisement might lead to a feeling of I'm, I'm bored. 
Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. You know, you know the most interesting, um, the most interesting module I did was uh, it was an American tutor, and I forget his name actually, but he did a course on race, gender, and sexuality in the Americas, and part cool. of that was studying the impact of makeup on, um, like, kind of border people who lived on the border between America and Mexico and mm. how it it brought a new empowerment to women that and visibility to women that hadn't always been there. You know, and they were actually seen as consumers uh, in their own right. And I remember when I saw that was on the syllabus thinking, well, I'm not really that interested in makeup. That's not going to be very interesting. And then doing this course and thinking, wow, you know, I had not considered any of that before. And And you're absolutely right, like, seeing women as historical, you know, as part of the story and as, as historical players with agency and, um, yeah, uh, in, in, you know, feeling that empowerment for them for the first time. And it was really good. It really opened my eyes. And, yeah, I think you're right. There's too much. We're, we are missed out too much. Uh, mm-hmm. Have been. You know, there's a, it's like there's a kind of, there's a historical tradition of, Erasing women, and consequently, it does make big bits of history really boring. <laughs> yeah, I, I, just as a woman reading it, to be like, "Well, where am I in this story?" Or if you see your gender showing up in the story, you're the ones being acted upon, yeah. rather than doing any of the acting. That's that's yeah, can have a so horrific effect if that's what you're reading. Definitely. I think that's only fair. Have you read Maggie O'Farrell's Hamnet? I haven't. It's on my um, to-read pile, but I haven't read it yet. Is it? Is it worth it? Very. Mm. Very, very, because her look at Shakespearean England during plague times puts Shakespeare's wife and um, mother and sister daughter all very central mm-hmm. it's 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 brilliant and also the, the she's got a whole chapter which is basically the epidemiology of the plague spreading there's a weird one my book club picked to read at the beginning of the pandemic yeah <laughs> some black humor involved yeah. <laughs> it was a strange choice <laughs> what did i want to ask you a little bit about Scandinavian. Do you have any favorite Scandinavian authors? Then we we texted about that a little bit. I know you like visiting. Um, yeah, I, I love visiting. I guess uh, Tove Janssen. Um, I read the summer book, which I loved. That I, I read that shortly after my grandma died, though. And um, you had said, yeah, it just I just made me cry so much. Sure, <laughs> it's a beautiful book. And um, I read a book called Out Stealing Horses. Well, I can't remember the author's name, um, but that was really good. I, you know, I wouldn't say it was a favourite, but it was really haunting and, um, yeah. yeah, beautiful. But I I just want to go and be there, and partic- you know, particularly Norway. It was really strange. So, so the story with Norway is my dad went, my dad was very... Um, you know, very working class, not very, not very affluent at all. And for various reasons, he was lucky enough to be taken on holiday there when he was 14. And he went with my auntie Joan and uncle Jeff 
who are not really my auntie and uncle. I can't really tell you what relative, relatives they are, but they took him and they went <laughs> on this road trip. And I think, you know, firstly, Norway wasn't a very big tourist destination in the 60s, as far as I'm aware. And second, like, it was quite unusual for people to go over with a car and particularly working class people, um, as my dad was. And this trip just stayed with him his whole life. And I grew up with him talking about Norway and saying how beautiful Norway was and how amazing and um, how he was desperate to one day get back there. And we, we planned to go after he retired. We were going to take a trip there as a family, but unfortunately he died before that could happen. And I'd managed to go over prior to his death and was a bit like, yeah, my dad was right. This place is special. And I I just remember getting off the boat and having this overwhelming feeling that I'd 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 made it home, that I'd found my like my home. You know, somewhere mm. deep inside me was just like, yeah. And it it just moved me in a way that I've I you know I've I've been lucky enough, you know, very consider myself very fortunate. I've traveled quite you know, relatively widely, not ridiculously, but relatively widely. And I've never had that feeling in the same way that I had when I set foot in Norway. And um, it's just like, it's just been this enduring love affair now for the last 10 years of every time I get enough money, enough free time, I just, I'm trying to persuade my friends and family, like, should we just go to, you know, Tron time for the weekend, you know. <laughs> and I think um, particularly my friends that I travel with are a bit like, oh God, do we have to go to Norway again? <laughs> I love it. And I am I am planning to get back there. That's been one of the hardest things about the pandemic really is I haven't travelled at all. Right. Until very, very recently. And I'm just like itching to get back to Norway. And yeah, I've been learning Norwegian for something like four years off and on with Duolingo, which is amazing. Wow. It's my Norwegian still rubbish. It's still rubbish. <laughs> and I think when I go that, you know, people are going to be like, we've been learning this for, you know, three, four years and you're still this bad at it. <laughs> it's hard though, isn't it? That's, it's hard, yeah. It's, it's hard. Because I, I, I speak German, a bit of French, but and a, a little bit of Spanish enough to cuss someone out pretty well, at least. <laughs> but uh, all the Scandinavian languages, they're, they're kind of like um, German on steroids for difficulty. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It looks it's German at school. And um, the Norwegian is pushing the German out of my head. Um, they're, they're like vying for space and it's really annoying because they're similar enough that I will sometimes mix words up and then kind of you know I can see the relation to English as well um, mm-hmm. but then they'll have words that there's there's this word um, can she which means maybe I think I'm going to get that wrong now um, but it, it, it's like a kind of everyday word but it doesn't sound remotely English or German it sounds totally unrelated and um yeah yeah it just it's a really peculiar language but, but the, the funny thing though is that because of my Yorkshire accent apparently I sound quite convincing so I once got into an argument with somebody in a Norwegian supermarket because oh, no. I something in Norwegian and at the time I'd, I'd learned this stock phrase which is I'm sorry I don't speak Norwegian do you speak English 
And he thought I was taking, um, you know, I was making fun of him. Taking the piss. I sounded like, <laughs> it sounded convincing. <laughs> and uh, it was really funny because he was like, well, you do speak Norwegian. And I was like, I don't. I know that one <laughs> phrase and I've managed to say it quite well. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah, it's all good fun. Is your background, do, do you have Norwegian blood? Do you have Norwegian ancestry? Is there a reason why this feels so much like home or is it just more soul home? Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised. I am, I'm very tall and blonde and blue eyed. Mm-hmm. Um, and when uh, there's a particular sort of cast to my hair that's slightly, slightly kind of warm. And when I went to... To Norway for the first time, I was just bowled over by how many tall, you know, it is true, the, the cliche, there's a lot of tall, blonde-haired, blue-eyed women. And, you know, I'm sort of 183 centimetres, something like that. And I was relatively, you know, average height slash maybe even not the tallest there by quite a long shot. So, and, and TH surnames apparently are quite often, in, particularly in this part of the world, in, in this part of the country, are quite often from Viking descent. So I like to think I am. I steadfastly refused to do a DNA test though, because if it came back and said I wasn't Scandinavian, I just would refuse to believe it. So I'm like- The oh. crashing blow. <laughs> yeah. 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 I'm like, absolutely not. I know I've got Scandi blood. So that's good enough for me. <laughs> I feel like your soul knows if there's that immediate recognition when you stepped foot on Norwegian- Soil, certainly part of your spirit felt at home there. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. You can't argue with that. No, um, what, what's really cool is the number of times that I've been, you know, in a Viking museum or looking around some folk museum and there's been an artifact and somebody's gone, oh, so this artifact has come from this particular place in Britain and that particular place in Britain they describe is really near me. And you can see the, the routes that they took and the, you know, the trade routes, the, the places they came over with. And I just think that's really, really cool. <laughs> and just that sort of interchange of culture. And yeah, in one of the museums, there's a piece of Whitby Jet and Whitby's our nearest almost nearest coastline from from Yorkshire you know it's on it's on the east coast and it yeah it's just like somebody picks that bit of Whitby jet up and took it to Norway and I just I love that I think that's really just magical (laughs) yeah I like thinking about that kind of stuff quite a bit too I like thinking about spice trades and and the way even I, I did Middle Eastern belly dance for a long time. And it's interesting when you follow that kind of music, mm-hmm. how many countries had similar sounds, even in, in Celtic music, it would bleed over. It's so interesting. Yeah, and really strangely, in a weird sort of serendipity, I went to Norway a couple of years ago and found myself at a belly dancing concert. No way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was conducting entirely in Norwegian, so I had no idea what was going on in between the dancing, but it was really impressive. But um, a lady I was kind of, I, I did, I worked, I did like a work exchange thing a few years ago and the lady that was, I, I suspect, kind of forced to look after me was really <laughs> belly dancing. So she invited me to this concert not expecting I would go, but of course I'm, I'm going to go because I want to see how people really live. 
uh, wherever I travel. And um, yeah, so went to this like totally random evening of belly dancing and it was really cool. I was very impressed. It, you know, I would love to be able to do some of those like movement isolations that they do. They're incredible. It is cool. Yeah. It's, it's not that hard. It just, <laughs> it's just as hard as anything, I guess, practice. Mm. I've, I've, I haven't done it in years. I, I seem to like to always be a beat. I'll do something long enough to get good at it and even teach it for a while and then I'll drop it. <laughs> And move on. <laughs> and sometimes it happens if it's getting like belly dance got to be really trendy here. Right. So then I was like, oh, okay, well, time for me to migrate away from that thing. <laughs> <laughs> Not wanting to be trendy. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose this is such a delight. I could talk to you all afternoon. It's clear. If you're ever in the States, you have to come. If you're ever on this side. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and if we're ever in Yorkshire, where you, you've had snow recently. Yeah, we had snow. Weird. Happy spring. <laughs> yeah, and then it snowed yesterday and the day before. Well, uh, sorry, last night into this morning and the day before, which is weird. But it's all gone now. It's all melted. It was fleeting, very fleeting. And that's not usual at all? Um, Not really. I mean, it does, we do sometimes get a flurry in spring, but... Yeah, it was quite a lot where I was. I was sort of north of the the county and uh, yeah, we had quite a lot. Um, yeah. I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's not totally unusual, but we don't get, you know, it's not, we don't get a lot of snow now anyway in the winter. And this is the only snow I think we've had that settled this year. Um, mm. It's been quite a mild winter. Climate change. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm just going to ask the only questions I ask the whole way through, and there are just three, and we've touched on the first one. What are you reading right now? Oh, I'm reading a terrible book, actually, at the minute. I'm oh, reading, fun. Um, the Pillars of the Earth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, The Pillars of the Earth. Ken Follett, I think. I'm reading it because I watched a TV show that was based on it about 10 years ago, and ever since then it's been on my to-be-read pile, and I thought, no, this is the year I'm going to do it. And I'm so far into it that I can't drop it, but it's quite annoying and the women are really rubbish in it. Well, they're not rubbish. They're just really, um, the way they're described is just really like their breasts walk into the room before they do. And they're all, you know, uh, lithely hipped and long-legged with milky white skin. And I'm just a bit like, oh. oh that's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So not the greatest <laughs> book. <laughs> I mean, if it was a parody of what it is, that would be one thing. That'd be entertaining. Yeah. Um, I'm, I, I'm midway through the Shard Lake series and I was trying to intersperse it with other things because the Shard Lake series by CJ Santum is so good um, that I just felt like I needed to slow down a bit. Otherwise, I would have just romped through them all. Mm. I need to look forward to. So um, I think CJ Santum is a massively underrated author I've really enjoyed all his books so far, particularly Winter in Madrid. And yeah, and the Chardlet ones are all excellent as well. So that's my top tip for a good read. Thank you. How many books are in the series? Maybe eight. Oh, that'll keep a girl busy for a while. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I, I'm in two book clubs, insanely. And there's the Literary Journal and the Memoir Writing. <laughs> 
bit. And, and is this like a fantasy author, basically? Um, CJ Sansom? No. Well, so he takes characters that could have existed at the time, you know, they're kind of their position in society, like the um, child, like the main character is a lawyer. Um, oh. And so he kind of sets him in a very real setting. And I think in one of the books he says, you know, he's not a real person, but the historical events are real. And the place that um, Shard Lake occupies in society is real and did he, you know, so he's, he's kind of put an imaginary person into a real setting, um, which is cool. Very cool. You know, I mean, it, it's believable in the, in the sense that I believe that he could have existed as a character and profession at that time. Um, yeah, he's it's, it's, it's really good, really good. I'm intrigued. I want to read these. When I'm done with, I'm reading Sue Monk Kidd's newest one, um, The Book of Longings. Right. Which is fascinating. And the other book club is anti-racism training, which everyone should do. And we're reading yeah. um, Jesse Daniels' Nice White Ladies, which I highly recommend. Yeah. It, it just looks at the, the really toxic role, especially it, it, it takes a global perspective, but largely American too. Um, the way that nice white ladies and white ladies' tears and capacity for being injured or offended has really caused a lot of racial cruelty, mm. just our own implication culturally in that. Not a fun read, but <laughs> important. Worthwhile read, nevertheless, yeah. Yeah, I think all nice white ladies should read it. And yeah. Maybe work on being less nice and more kind. Yeah. yeah. That's good advice. Right. So what are you listening to right now? What's on your turntable or if, if you don't listen via that CD player or however you listen. We have about 2,000 albums in the next room over. <laughs> All vinyl. You're, you're culture hungry, aren't you? <laughs> Does it appear that way? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm listening to a lot of metal. Um, oh, cool. I, I, I love metal and... Tool and a Perfect Circle are definitely very much so. Today I was I did a lot of driving today and I was listening to all the Tool back catalogue shuffled, um, which is good. And yeah, I'm always listening to Perfect Circle. Perfect Circle were the band that I saw prior to um, lockdown, and Tool are going to be the first band that I see after lockdown. So that feels kind of cool. That is really cool. That's awesome. My husband's actually an industrial rock musician and top of being a sound engineer. Yeah, I'm going to urge him to send you an MP3. He's got some some headbangers. Nice. <laughs> yeah. At the at the Perfect Circle um, gig that I went to, I took my friend Phil, who's a, 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 also an incredible musician, very accomplished. I'm, I'm not, can't play anything. Um, and he made a stand behind the the sound tech guy um, with, you know, the, at the desk because he was like, that is going to be the best place for the sound. It is. And uh, and afterwards he was sort of saying to this guy, oh, you're brilliant. The sound was incredible. And this guy was like, he, he looked like the least rock and roll person you could ever imagine. He just had like jean shorts on and like sandals and socks and a little baseball cap and a little Airtex t-shirt. 
He just looked like, you know, you might live next door to him and he was sure. a really nice bloke. <laughs> <It's> really cool. <laughs> yeah, I'll have my husband send you an MP3. He's actually been doing work with a metal band, um, really screamy metal, really fun metal called Circus of Dead Squirrels. <laughs> That's a great name. <laughs> yeah, we'll see if we can hook you up with something. Metalhead. Throw some goats. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. So I guess we go from a higher brow all the way down. What are you, what are you watching right now? Do you, do you watch television? Uh, Yeah. So um, the thing that I've, I've been, so I, I've got like this, this weird guilty pleasure, which is watching historical documentaries. Mm, That's kind of highbrow for a guilty pleasure. It is, but they're always a bit, they're always a bit rubbish. You know, it's stuff like, you know, finding Nefertiti's tomb and all that gubbin. So I kind of pair that with, um, at the moment I'm watching, I'm desperately trying to think of something cool to tell you, but I'm I'm watching Bridgerton um, and it's a, oh, fun. It's a bit rubbish and rash it and fun and very diverting and you can just put it on and it doesn't matter if you don't totally concentrate and the, you know, the sets are lovely and the dresses are lovely and, there's lots of lovely people in it to look at. And it, it's just, yeah, it's just diverting and silly and really nice. <laughs> Are you in season two of Bridgerton? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, the new season? Um, episode three. So no spoilers. <laughs> no, we haven't gotten to that yet. We're, we're, we watched season one. I mean, that, that hot duke. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> and then I feel so He's pervy. Not in season two. <laughs> and, uh, well, I don't know if I'm going to watch then. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I feel bad that hot Duke. I think he's like 32 years old or something. So he's <laughs> he's the same age as my middle child, <laughs> slightly younger. <laughs> <laughs> but not hard to look at. All the same, he's very very easy on the eye. Quite. Yeah, we're we're, we're watching. Um, Ozark. I, like, I've seen that. I haven't, I, it sort of keeps popping up as being something that people recommend and I haven't quite got around to watching it yet. It's brilliant. I mean, if you like to relax with a little bit of murder in the evening. And who doesn't, quite frankly? I, I, I find a little bit of killing really rea- relaxing, especially with everything that's going on politically. <laughs> you know, I can envision like a certain orange 45th, president in the role as victim and make myself happy. (laughs) We don't say his name. People are allowed to swear. They can say everything on the podcast, but we don't say his name. That is the unspeakable. (laughs) So yay. Bridgerton. I know, you know, it's relaxing. It's fun. It's pretty. And Shonda Rhimes, everything Shonda Rhimes does is really fun. Yeah. Yeah. The showrunner. She knows how to, do a show. Mm, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, and it's just, it is, it's just a bit of a treat. You know, I, I will probably not be able to remember that much that happens, you know, in six months time, but I just, it's nice, turn your brain off. And it, I, I think it's quite comforting at the minute, you know, as you say, with everything that's going on, I don't necessarily want to watch too much like Scandi Noir or really violent things, you know, things that particularly like make you uncomfortable. I, I, quite happy to just watch a bit of Bridgerton and uh yeah you know actually I, I am I am sort of getting quite as 
on-demand telly becomes better, I'm getting more and more selective about what I actually watch. And I tend to find now, like whereas in the past I would have just put um, the TV on and it would have been on all evening. Now I'm, I kind of put a specific program on and then turn it off. So I'm actually watching less as we get more, you know, as as on-demand gets more in a way, which is, I think, maybe the opposite to what they expect. Uh, we won't tell them. No, don't tell them. Yeah. We won't tell them. I like to really confound the algorithms as well by not, I refuse to binge watch. <laughs> like, <laughs> again, much to, much to the chagrin of my friends. Um, they're like, yeah, let's watch another episode. And I'm like, nope, we've watched one. We now have to wait three days before we can watch another. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I'm a hoarder. I'll spin it out. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. So where can our listeners find you and follow you? My my website is the-sniff.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram um, at the Sniff website and Twitter with the same handle. Yeah, so those are the places. And if you go onto Fragrantica, you can, I've got an author profile on there, so you can find me through that and articles will pop up as I write them. That's exciting. This is so much fun. Well. So much fun. We're going to hang out and go to a metal show when you're in the States. That would be ace. (laughs) That's what we're going to do. Thanks for having me. Such a a treat. Thank you so much for coming on and for being flexible with weird time mix-ups and other things. (laughs) Okay. Don't worry, it's fine. Hold on and we'll make sure we're done recording. All right. Wow. That was great. Wasn't that charming? It was. It was really good. So, as we promised, we've got six word stories. Six word stories. Do we have special music for this section? We do. I think it's queuing up right now. Woohoo. All right. I'll start with one from Richard Wayne Horton. And he writes Gilded Sadness, walking down Fifth Avenue. Maybe, uh, Sebastian. From Rick Murnane. Songs are everywhere, somewhere wings. Her bicycle has a secret name. Sleep eluded him, old movies didn't. Another one from Richard Wayne Horton. Holiday, picnic nausea, too many legs. Another six word story from Rick Murnane. Not on Facebook, imagine my anguish. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure he's in tons of anguish. Tons of anguish. Uh, here's one from Laurie DeRosier. Train ride, mask on, better days. Yeah, I agree. Connecting to that, uh, Kim Martin. So many have died. Wake up. Fair enough. Fair enough. And lastly, I think we have one from Marion Kent. Marion Kent herself. Breathing in, she tightens apron strings. boy oh boy well if you like those and you want to be part of that we have usually a call for six word stories every few weeks on the meat for tea cast facebook page keep your eye on it speaking of um meat for tea things to keep your eye on if you are a writer a photographer a poet an essayist we're open for submissions. We're accepting submissions now for the mugwort issue. Are you to take that theme literally? Fuck no. 
Our episode just got an explicit rating. Yay! Hey, I always strive for that. We usually do. <laughs> the deadline is May 22nd. How so, do they find you? How do you? How, how, do, how do they go do this? Well, there's a singular address you can use for finding everything, and that's meatfortea.com. M-E-A-T-F-O-R-T-E-A dot com. Just click on the submit link and it'll take you to our submission guidelines and a link at the top of the page to our Duo Suma, which is Duotrope's submission manager page, and that's where you can do the thing. To do and the thing. hey, here's a hot tip. Actually read the submission guidelines. <laughs> Most people do. Some don't seem to, so we, we, we really like it when, when we get the uh, submissions that actually are within the guidelines. As always, thanks for listening. We love you guys. We'll love you more and we can hear your voices. Oh, yeah. Well, one other thing before we actually sign out. April 27th, Abandoned Building Brewery. Uh, oh, yeah. Hot show. Oh, yeah. So April 27th at Abandoned Building Brewery. Woohoo! I'm going to be playing a show. Uh, I'm doing a solo. What? Yeah, a solo electronic set. So I'm going to be doing the sort of techno stuff that I've done. It'll be me and a laptop and a microphone, basically. Closing out after the three illustrious bands prior to me, which is Stoneburner. Woohoo! We're an electric industrial band out of the Baltimore area. There's Compactor. They are industrial power electronics from New York City, I believe the Brooklyn area, but I'm not positive. And then Retribution Body are a Boston area band, I believe. And no, Providence, that's right. That's right. Matt lives in Providence. So we've got uh, Steven from Stoneburner and Derek from Compactor and and their, their relative things and Matthew from Retribution Body and myself playing a show. Abandoned Building Brewery, April 27th, 7 p.m. It's 10 bucks. Love That's to see a lot of bang for your 10 bucks. It's a pretty it's a pretty big bang for the book, I think. So, and I'm happy to be playing this. I'm sticking my neck out and doing basically a laptop show, which I have only done once in recent years and back in the At day. At a meet for tea, sir. That's right. And back in the day was sort of laptop, although it wasn't laptop. It was still a bunch of electronics on stage and me singing. So doing it again. One more hot little tip. Keep your eye on We Made This Network and on their podcast, No Book Club. I'm actually going to be chatting with Matt Latham tomorrow for an in-depth conversation all about Shauna, Shauna Shipman from Yellow Jackets. I'll be the first of four chats. Actually, that reminds me. Uh, we were both guests on the Creative Piecemeal podcast, and my episode that I was on as a guest uh, dropped, I think, a few weeks ago. I think yours might have just dropped. It's dropping soon. Yeah. So um, Creative Piecemeal, that's P-E-A-C-E, Piecemeal, is the podcast. Uh, you can check out my episode. I'm probably four or five episodes back now, and Elizabeth's will be coming up very soon. And it's, uh, it's pretty great, and we were really honored to be her guest. So that's it. I think that's it. We covered a lot of ground, and we talked about ourselves a lot in this, but... Uh, we, we're up to shit. <laughs> we do have a lot going on. There's there's more in the hopper, folks. We'll let you know when, it, when it's uh, more appropriately timed. But for now, thank you so much for joining us, the Meet for Tea cast, and we'll catch you in a couple weeks. Sayonara. Ciao. The Meat for Tea cast is produced by Elizabeth McDuffie and Meat for Tea, The Valley Review. Mixed by Mark Allen Miller at Sewn Lab, East Hampton, Massachusetts. 
visit Meat for Tea at www.meatfortea.com. Please consider going to anchor.fm to make a contribution through our contribution page. You can reach us through meatforteacast at gmail.com or you can leave a voice message at anchor.fm forward slash meatforteacast. We welcome suggestions for our contents for the Meat for Tea cast. If you've attended a Meat for Tea Cirque and want to hear from one of the bands or one of the spoken word contributors, please let us know. All portions are copyright Meat for Tea and their respective holders. Vote for Meat for Tea on your favorite podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at Elizabeth, Meat for Tea on Instagram and on the Meat for Tea and Meat for Tea cast Facebook pages. Meat for Tea is available everywhere you get your favorite podcasts.